Today's reading is Acts 3, 11 through 26. It can be found on page 1005 of the Bible's next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, People of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man, whom you see and know, was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our our God of grace, these words of scripture... As ancient as they are, they're they're timeless. They have the timeless ability to pierce right into our hearts, into our lives today. And um, with words like we just read, which said to look forward to times of refreshment for our souls. Some of us come and we need that so badly, we sit here just parched spiritually. We're in a wilderness longing for times of refreshment. Others of us, we might come with an experience of your grace that is recent and real. And, and so that's sort of like a, a cold and a hot place. And we might come really lukewarm as well. We might come and sit here kind of dulled and anesthetized by the comforts of life or the pursuits of our life. Um a consumeristic and entertainment culture. 
wherever we come from, the truth is we're all more of a mess than we care to admit. We don't want everyone to know it, but we're a mess, and we come to you as broken people, needing times of refreshment. Will you bring that today? Will you bring that through the grace that this Bible talks about? That even though we're more of a mess, you treat us like your beloved adopted children. You give us special honor. You have moved towards broken and messy people through Jesus, your son, and reclaimed us as your children, given us the privilege to be in your presence confidently all our lives and to know that you smile upon us. Why can't we seem to live that way? Will you help us today to know it and learn to live it out? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What, what do you believe about the future and how does it change what you're doing today and how you're living? Big questions. Last year was a year of asking a lot of those big questions. Um, do you even remember that last year was the year when the Mayan calendar ended? You know, I remember the first time probably about nine or ten years ago that someone told me that. In, in this sort of like, you know, almost had this mystical voice as they said it. You know, 2012 is when the Mayan calendar ends, you know. So last year was one of those years as it came to a close that, you know, preparation for end times and what's going to happen. Um, it was kind of in the air. And um, I did some looking into things, and I, I never really brought it into sermons or anything up here. But I started poking around towards the end of the year. And... Um, and I found some of these, some of these things. There's, there's this show, I guess. I haven't seen it, but it's called uh, Doomsday Preppers. So people who are preparing for doomsday, and they tend to be kind of the, you know, the best ones are the odd, really odd individuals who are gearing their whole life around some assumption about the future. Um, there's this guy, Preston, from central Colorado. He's the Johnny Appleseed of preppers. He's a computer programmer by trade. Preston believes that radiation from Fukushima, you know, the, the earthquake and the power plant in Japan, will soon be descending on the United States, ending life as we know it. In fact, Preston believes the radiation has already hit and has already, this is, you know, at the end of the year, so I think we know a little more about this now. It's already, um, he believes it's already hit and has already altered the genetic makeup of mo the most important asset for humanity's sur survival. What is that? Seeds. See, no one guessed that. Seeds. <laughs> I looked to, I looked to the, I looked to the seed scientist in the crowd. Um, sorry to put you on the spot there, Mark. And uh, so here's what he did. He he's prepared according to the doomsday preppers. He's collected more than thirty thousand seeds, which he stores in a dedicated fridge. He's laid all the seeds, uh, I'm sorry, he, now that his seed collection is complete, Preston is building a complex of modified tents he hopes can withstand large doses of radiation. One tent for growing food and the second for sleep, uh, sleeping and cooking. I don't know, tents don't sound like the answer to me with radiation, but that's what, that's what he's doing. And it, you know, as you read these kind of stories, they just get weird, right? You, and you expect them to be weird. People who are looking to the future and saying the end is near, you expect automatically what goes with that is people are going to act very, very odd and do crazy things. Um, you think of um, Heaven's Gate. Does you remember Heaven's Gate? Uh, this group of people, uh, the comet was coming close to our earth, Hale-Bopp, and, and, and you know, it has these views of what's going to happen in the end can have incredibly 
dark consequences on our behavior. And for that group, it was uh, like a mass suicide, um, which is which is just so disturbing and dark and, and odd in itself. Um, but then the details, you know, I was fishing around looking into this, the details of how they were all wearing the exact same brand and type of shoe, and they all had exactly the same amount of pocket change in their pockets, as they, and they had the same kind of colored cloth laid over them as they, you know, as they prepared to be, as they died, and then prepared to be taken to, the, it was just odd. And you go, what, what's going on? What tends to happen with, with uh, preppers, if you want to call them that, people preparing for the end, is that they, they isolate, um, they disengage, and they become too modern, you know, to daily life, they become what most of us would say is sort of irrelevant. When you move into this realm of imagining what's next with our world and how, how might it end, and how are you going to prepare for that future? And Christians actually are the opposite. That uh, a Christian should be thoroughly engaged if you truly believe what the Bible says about where things are going. A Christian who believes what the Bible says about the future and about how how things are going to, if you want to call it end, um, as things are going to go into the future, what do you do now? You get engaged. You get involved in the transformation of the world around us. That's actually the the outcome of, of... having a full-orbed view of where things are going, what's in the future for uh, this world. And what I find is there's a major barrier. There's a major problem in that, um, and I'd love to go into the history and, and figure it out intellectually where this came from, but I'll just say where we find ourselves, and it's probably familiar to a lot of you, is we find ourselves, by and large, if you're connected with the Christian faith, you've heard the narrative of where things are going, and it sounds exactly like this. We're, you know, a certain number of us who believe are going to end up in heaven with God in some sort of spiritual place forever and ever. You know, the end. That's what we have in store. Um, and I'm here to say, and it, it may sound controversial, it might not sound anything to you, but... I'm here to say that that's not the picture of the future that the Bible gives, that the narrative gives of Scripture. In fact, what it gives is it tells us that, that all things are going to be made new. And we've had that, I don't know if you've noticed on the screen, some of the readings so far already, have, it brought some of these Scriptures to light. What the Bible promises is a restored earth. The world we know that, that you look at and you see around us, restored, made new, a new earth is in our future. We're going to look at this. We're going to look at this restored creation um, very briefly uh, and in three ways. First, just that the Bible overflows with glimpses of it. I find we need to start with that because um, I think we, so many Christians have come so far off and, and, and we need to really see, does the Bible really teach this? So the Bible overflows with glimpses of this restored creation. Your heart longs for tastes of it. And third... Uh, your, your world around you needs people who believe in it. So the Bible overflows with glimpses of it. I wish I didn't have to go through all these examples. Um, it won't be long, but you heard it in our passage that we read. As Peter is giving this, this speech, he says, Heaven, so there is heaven involved, Heaven must receive him, Jesus, until the time comes for God 
to restore everything. So you hear it right there. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago in the holy prophets. And if you go back, what is he talking about? Let me just give you one example of the promise of the holy prophets in Isaiah 65, verse 17. In your Bibles, in the chairs, it's page 692. This is what it says. See, God says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. And it goes on to say, The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. That's the future. Notice how it started. I will create new heavens and a new earth. Second Peter, verse 3. In your Bibles, it's page 1128. 3 verse, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But in keeping with his promise... Again, looking back to the ancient scriptures. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. In all those instances, uh, heaven was mentioned, but a new earth is right there too. And so you see something that I referenced last week in Revelation, almost the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 21 says, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is where? In heaven, in the clouds? No. Is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. What I skipped was the first verse of that, which says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I didn't mean to skip that, but that was in there too. So what's the summary? I like the simplicity with which um, the writer N.T. Wright, in, actually in the book I held up called Simply Christian, he says this, bringing the term resurrection into this whole conversation. He says, resurrection doesn't mean going to heaven when you die. It isn't about life after death. It's about life after life after death. After you die, you go to be with Christ. Life after death. But your body remains dead. So he's trying to summarize what the Bible teaches. Describing where and what you are in that interim period is difficult, and for most for the most part of the New Testament for the most part the New Testament writers didn't try, he says. This is a New Testament scholar explaining this. Call it heaven if you like, but don't imagine that it's the end of all things. What is promised after that interim period is a new bodily life within God's new world or life after life after death. And then just to read another sentence or two that's actually also in the worship guide on page four, uh, this quote, he says, I am constantly amazed that many contemporary Christians find find this confusing. It was second nature to the early church 
into many subsequent Christian generations. God's plan is not to abandon this world, the world which he said was very good. Rather, he intends to remake it. And when he does, he will raise all his people to new bodily life to live in it. That is the promise of the Christian gospel, he says. One, uh, one other scholar of the Bible named um, Maltby Babcock, he was a minister over 100 years ago, and he did some writings and poems, and one of his poems became a hymn that I actually, when I was growing up, I, I learned these words, and it went like this. It especially resonates with children. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and heaven and earth be one. So you get the point. You get the picture of the Bible. This is God's world. He's not giving up on it. In fact, the future is something much more like heaven heaven invading earth, the future invading the present, God's perfect presence coming and redeeming and creating and restoring a broken world. And think about how much difference that makes in how you live. Just Have you applied that big picture to, to your life? Have you ever really applied that, that big picture of where things are going to your daily life? Pick an area of your life and consider the implications, whether it's work or relationships or your future or your calling in life or where to live or what to do with your time. If you believe that this world, all of this, is a broken world that was created good and God has not given up on it and he's coming to re-enter, he's coming because it's his and the future involves him remaking all of it, Bodily, physically, as one person, one mentor of mine put it, matter matters, right? This world, it's significant, and God God cares about matter, about real life, flesh and blood. How does that change how you live? Well, one thing for sure is it will change how you live. It will also change how you approach death, how you look at death. A Christian funeral, a good Christian funeral becomes not... um, well, now this person has gone off to heaven forever and someday all of us will be in that disembodied spiritual heavenly place singing right along with this person. That's actually not a very good, you know, so, and, and then the end of that might be, the sales pitch might be, so make sure you, you live really good right now so that you can end up in that place. It's actually not a very good Christian application of our future. One of my mentors who I listened to a lot of his sermons, um, Tim Keller, who's the author of one of these books as well, he put it this way. He said that he he and his wife um, knew this guy named um, Alan Gibbles, I think is his name. Yeah, Alan Tibbles. And he was a Christian leader in Baltimore who got paralyzed in his 20s, a very active athletic person. He got paralyzed, I think, a basketball injury. And, And then at his funeral, when he was later, like in his 40s, after living this, this long life of being paralyzed, of still being an active Christian leader. On the brochure at his funeral, on the back page, if you flip it over, was a picture of him from in his 20s jumping. You know, elevated like three or four feet off the air, 
just a stunning picture to see a, a, at a memorial service, at a funeral. What's going on with that? I mean, on the one hand, you say, well, you know, if, if you're not a Christian, that's just kind of a clever, nice, ironic, uh, hopeful image, right? But if you're a Christian, that speaks volumes to your hope. That speaks volumes to how you look at this world and how you live today. A bodily, a, a bodily future in a new creation. That really is where things are going. How does that change how you live? So the Bible overflows with glimpses of it, but your heart also longs for tastes of it. There's this novel that I've been reading called Saint Maybe by Ann Tyler. And in this, in this book, there's a boy named Thomas who's lost his mother um, and her dad was never really part of the picture. So he lost his mother when he was very little, has very few memories to even attach to his mom. He was just so little when she died. And it portrays him and it kind of gets into his mind about how he thinks about heaven. And notice this. Notice the images that he has when he thinks about heaven. This is how she portrays it. The answer is, this is sort of his thinking, the answer is you get to meet in heaven. They'll be waiting for you there if you've been careful to do things right. His mother would be waiting in her frilly pink dress. She would drive her station wagon to the gate and she'd sit there with the motor idling, her elbow resting on the window ledge. And when she caught sight of him, her face would light up all happy and she would wave. Thomas, over here, she would call. And if he didn't spot her right away, she would honk. And then, and then he would catch sight of her and start running in her direction. I wanted to read that because I think she's right in that no matter how much you've been influenced by, someday you're going to go off to heaven in the clouds forever in some sort of um, disembodied spirit, spirit world, as much as you might be influenced by that, in the end, if, you're, if you've got to figure out how that might be good, you're going to load it with physical images. You notice all of them that were in that imagination of this little boy, frilly pink dress, a station wagon, an elbow resting on a window ledge, a, you know, a hand waving, a car honking, all these sounds and sights of real worldly life. Your heart longs for this to be true. And you know it. You know what? Deep down in your bones, you were created for this world, for this embodied world, not for some disembodied world. And so that's the reason why I believe in this passage when Peter heals a man who was born uh, crippled, and Peter heals him in the name of Jesus. So it's Jesus who, who heals him. That's... We're wired up for the physicality of this world. And I think that's the reason why everyone, as we, as we read it, as the passage began, everyone is running towards Peter. Everyone just, this, this thing happens where someone is brought new life and their brokenness, their physical, earthly brokenness is fixed back up and they become like a new creation through this name of Jesus. It says... The people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. They were running. They're running. You know, the same thing happened when the first word got out that Jesus' uh, body wasn't in the tomb anymore. Running. 
running. Our hearts long. Our hearts long for this to be true. Nothing talks about yearning and, and, and wanting something more than if you, you, you see something, you get some taste or glimpse of it, and you run towards that. You run. I think it's an automatic response of our heart is to run towards um, any taste we get that our future really is a rebuilt, restored, healed creation. And there might be some of that that's coming in the future. And notice Peter, I, I think almost in a sense of, of kind of saying, whoa, 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 you know, let's, let's, let's take things one step at a time when he says in verse 21, um, the time that comes for God to restore everything. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. Peter has just restored, you know, restoration has just come to one person. And Peter's careful to say, there, it, it's not all just going to come in at once. There's something that's been inaugurated. There's something that's been ushered in. There's something that's invading our world. There's a new created newness. Uh, that you're, and you're longing for it all to come at once. And it's going to come slowly. It's going to come in increments. You're going to see bright spots in your life here and there. I think one of the most relevant questions you can ask, though, about this whole thing is, have you caught any glimpse of it at all? And are you running? You know, how do you describe your, your spiritual demeanor? Is it running? Are you running towards the tastes you've had of newness that God brings? Oh, you know, a lot of the time, I'm honestly, the answer a lot of time is no. You know, I'm, I'm strolling, you know, I'm browsing the aisles, um, I'm sort of standing off in the distance, glimpsing, wondering, maybe skeptically, is anything good going to happen? Is my life really going to change? I mean, there's basically two, two approaches. There's either, you know, you've, you've had some glimpse, some good taste of what the Bible talks about as first fruits of the new creation. In other words, you've seen some glimpse of the Holy Spirit's newness that is very real and has excited you and made you want to run towards God with, with anything you can, can bring to it, or you haven't. And I would say you should still attempt to run towards God because there's going to be a lot of mundane just drawing and looking and studying and, and trying to figure out who is this God and what is his story. Run towards him just because you want to get a glimpse of it because you've heard people like me and other friends Say, yes, there is this newness. I've caught a glimpse. And you say, I want to catch it too. Run. You know, change from a, from a stroll to a run in your life, whatever that looks like for you. Dive into it. Dive into pursuing Jesus. Who is he? What does he mean? The only way to get a glimpse of him is to, to run towards him with your life, with your energy, with your time. Does that describe your life lately? Does that describe your, how you've built maybe scripture reading and prayer into your daily life? How you've you know, surrounded yourself with, with relationships of Christians who, so that, you know, in the midst of all the relationships with the other people, that you, there's sort of this centeredness to keep running to God and running to His grace and trying to get more glimpses of it. Does that describe your life? Well, so your heart longs for tastes of this. And I say run towards it so you can get more tastes of it. And finally, your world needs people who believe in it. Our world is chock full of brokenness. I mean, just every week, there's some new troubling news event that's, you know, just awful. And, you know, now we live in this terrible age where you can accidentally click on it and see something of that brokenness that you didn't even want to see, you know, and it's just like right in your face. There's always something. 
often there's just so randomness, random that you say, how could I possibly do anything about that evil? And it's enough to simply overwhelm your heart and spirit sometimes. All the evilness, all the brokenness in this world. It's hard to hang on to the words of that hymn that I, that I mentioned earlier. This is my father's world. He says, That though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Terribly hard thing to walk around believing, to hold. But Christians are, Christians are those people uniquely because of the story that we live within who know how it ends. Know how this story ends, knows where it goes. We know that the dynamic of the, of the narrative of this world is heaven invading earth. That's what Jesus was all about. It was heaven coming to earth. God tabernacling, making sanctuary amidst us so that we might see him clearly, so that all the world might be brought back to him. Another way to look at it is Christians live like the future is constantly invading the present. And that's what we, that's, that shapes our prayers. That shapes what we do with our life. And our world is desperate for people who live like that, who don't bury their head in the sand because they say, as a lot of what I'm trying to talk against today, what a lot of Christians have said is the world's just going to burn up and so let's just look to heaven and, and um, kind of get through it with blinders on. Some of you have been influenced by that. Christians believe that heaven is invading. The future is invading now, and we're agents of that. We work that out. We attempt to put our lives into that. In a sense, to follow Jesus is to look at Jesus and say, Jesus came and alleviated suffering constantly, and then he alleviated the suffering and the brokenness of my own heart. How can I not go out into this world that he's restoring and be involved in alleviating suffering? How can I not do that? And so you know, take any example. I mean, Peter, basically what we see in this passage is Peter has just, the nature of the Christian community is the presence of Christ can be so strong that, that, that new creation can break out all of a sudden in the midst of Christian community. And that's exactly what happens. A man who's been crippled all his life, uh, who was born, it says, with a birth defect, his whole body is restored. Do you know that when the Christian movement was was kind of building steam in the early couple of centuries, one of the biggest things that they accomplished that we never even hear about or talk about is that Christianity was dead set against infanticide and leaving babies out, they called it exposure, leaving babies out uh, because they were deformed or because they were female and just leaving them out to the elements. Huge accomplishment of the Christian faith was being dead set against that and working against it. In some cases... Being the ones who went out and rescued a baby who might have deformities, who was out, put out in the, you know, the elements, rescue that baby and care for it, adopt it and make it their own. Take on the suffering, take on the weight and the burden of that. Our world desperately needs people who live like that. You go a few centuries later, and you see Christians um, amidst famines developing hospitals for the poor and people who are under-resourced. You look at today, and in today's world, there's so many things, there's so many issues. Like I said, sometimes these random things come up and you go, what, what can you even do about such a random act of evil or brokenness? But I think of one, one person I met, and one Christian, single woman in um, 
San Francisco. Her name's Anne Broadway. She actually wrote a book on um, chastity called Sexless in the City. But she also blogs, and she also has these other um, causes that she started. When she lived in Brooklyn, she prayed for her neighborhood and then would go out and ask people what, they, what she could pray for. And she was, had this astonishing story of people kind of opening up their lives to her and seeing all kinds of transformation happen. Her recent thing is um, a yearly thing called Pray for the John's Day. So, you know, you've heard a lot about sex trafficking. She says she's going to pray and set up a movement of praying for those who are causing the damage, not just those who are victims. There's, plenty, there's all kinds of stuff going on, praying and resourcing, but also praying for those who are so screwed up and broken that they're victimizing people constantly. And so on Super Bowl Sunday, actually I think it was Super Bowl Sunday or Super Bowl weekend, she, the first year she did it on Valentine's Day, last year, and then, or 2011, and then 2012, she moved it to Super Bowl weekend. Why? Because um, whatever city where the Super Bowl is has a sudden rise in sex crimes and sex trafficking and sex abuse from all the, you know, men descending on this town. So she said, we're going to use that weekend. We're going to pray for the Johns. Unorthodox, you know, kind of strikes you as, what? Never would have thought of that. But it's someone who's a Christian saying, this is my future. This is the future of this world, is the brokenness, the pain, the abuse will all be made new and the tears will be all wiped away. And I'm confident about this future so much that I'm going to enter into it now and get that restoration happening. Are you living like that? You know, when The Lord of the Rings, that big epic tale, amazing story by J.R.R. Tolkien, when it ends and the, the little hobbits are coming back to Hobbit land called the Shire, and it's a mess, it's totally broken, everything's a mess. It's, it's overwhelming how much brokenness there is, like our world today. And they come back, but there's something different about them. They've been changed. They know from these far-off battles that the victory is won that there's an inevitable future for the Shire, that it's so messed up, but they've seen it. They know, they've experienced it and tasted the victory. They know it's going to trickle down and the rebuilding is going to take place. And that if they begin and they enter into the restorative work, it's not going to be just wasted time. Evil's not going to win out. The future of the renewed creation is sure. Do you get the similarities of how we live? We, and it's not just by an example. Don't expect that you're going to be inspired by the example of Jesus or by any of the examples I gave today to have that extra kick to go out there and to make things new just because you've been inspired by the example of Jesus. You need to be changed by it. In your own heart, you need to see how broken you are and how the new king, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, is making you a new creation. You need to have the first fruits of the Spirit in your own life. Only then. Otherwise, you'll just exhaust yourself. You'll burn out and you'll say, yeah, I used to believe in trying. (laughs) Not anymore. This world's too evil. You need to be changed from the inside out and to have the endless well to draw from to bring out into this new creation that God is building and someday will complete. Let us pray. God of grace, we pray that you work in us by your Holy Spirit. Make City Life Church a place where the first fruits of the Spirit radiate into this city and all the brokenness that we're surrounded by radiates into our families radiates into the city
radiate, radiates into the children in the city who are, who are lacking love in their life, opportunities in their life, or facing dramatic abuse. Radiate your love through us, in us and through us, so that we might be agents bringing about your new creation as the future already invades our world today. Help us in this. Our faith is weak. We rely on your spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.